passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. This morning I preached the final chapter of the book of Ruth, but uh, I need to bring everybody up to speed about the book of Ruth, because not all of us have been here through that study. So let me tell you a little bit about the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is a story uh, about a family that during a time of famine ended up deciding to leave Israel. They didn't just leave Israel geographically, but they, and they went to the land of Moab, but what they did is they went, um, they left Israel actually spiritually. Elimelech, who was the father of the family, he ended up dying while on the land of Moab. They had two sons, Malon and Chilion, and they married Moabite women, and then they died. And eventually, Naomi, the mother of the family, all who was left, she came home to Israel, empty and alone. No husband, no sons. But she did have one person who was with her, and that was Ruth. Ruth is the Moabite widow. Ruth is the daughter-in-law of her. And the book of Ruth is the story of how um, Ruth cared for her elderly, vulnerable mother when she went back to the land of Israel. Not only did she care for her elderly, vulnerable mother-in-law, but she actually changed. She left worshiping the god of the god Shemash, who is the god of Moab, and she decided to start following Yahweh, the god of Israel. Today we would say this is the story of Ruth, who becomes a Christian. She moved from becoming a Moabite to becoming an Israelite. She left behind her friends, she left behind her family, and she knew that taking care of Naomi and becoming a Christian and moving to Israel was going to be a costly thing for her. Because as a Moabite, which were the arch enemies of the Israelites, moving into Israel, she was probably going to be giving up the possibility of ever getting married of ever getting remarried and having children. But yet, this is what she chose to do. The book of Ruth is a story about how God providentially cared for Naomi and cared for Ruth in their tough situation. And it's the reminder that God still cares for those who turn to him and trust in him today. Even when they start in a position where they're very far from him, as far as like a woman who was named Ruth, who was a Moabite. Now for the last two weeks, Pastor Jordan uh, showed us how God's providential care in action in Ruth chapter 2 and chapter 3. Ruth is a, is a poor woman. She went out into the fields to pick up the leftover grain that had fallen into the dirt after the harvesters had passed through. And that's the way the poor would provide for themselves, by picking up the kernels of grain. 
And it's interesting because she just happened to find herself in the, the field of a man named Boaz. She just happened to find that Boaz was a single man. And she happened to find that Boaz was a wealthy man. And she just happened to find that Boaz was actually one of their family's kinsmen redeemers. The book of Ruth is the story of how God was providentially caring for Ruth and Naomi in their desperate situations and circumstances. Now, today, many of us would skip the idea of providence and we say, wasn't she just lucky to be at the right place at the right time? But the scriptures tell us that there is no such thing as luck. That life doesn't operate by chance, but that God is large and in charge of all things. In fact, Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33 tells us that every rolling of the dice, no matter what numbers come up, that was foreordained by God himself. So truly, this was God caring for Ruth, putting her in the right place at the right time to meet the right person who could redeem Naomi and Ruth out of their desperate plight and situation. And as Pastor Jordan showed us in Ruth chapter 2 and chapter 3, um, Ruth and Boaz develop sort of a friendship. And Boaz extends kindness and care to Ruth. But at the end of the harvest season, they are no longer crossing paths with one another. And Boaz is on the threshing floor, threshing his grain. And Naomi, the Ruth's mother-in-law, says there has to be a way to get you two together. So she tells Ruth, you know, take a shower, put on new clothes, do up your hair, and show up to the threshing floor at night. And what Ruth does is she shows up and she uncovers Boaz's feet. Incidentally, this is the first biblical case of a man getting cold feet over a woman. <laughs> because at midnight, he wakes up with literally cold feet, and he looks and sees Ruth at his feet, and like, what do you want? And she says, would you spread your garment over me? Or some translations would say, would you extend your wings over me? Now, some of you are wondering, well, what is she saying? We're both cold? Get under the cover and snuggle? <laughs> Not at all. That's a Hebrew euphemism. It's a euphemism for would you extend your care and protection over me? Ruth is asking Boaz to marry her. Would you take care of Naomi and myself? And would you function as our kinsman redeemer? And this also means that Boaz is in the right position to marry Ruth and to bear a child through Ruth who would be able to carry on the family line. Now, what I love about Boaz, as a little side note, is I love his character. You'd think uh, most older men who had a younger woman says, hey, would you marry me? He'd be like, I'm all about that. Uh, that's not the way Boaz is. He says, I may be able to be a kinsman redeemer, but there is a redeemer that is closer than me. We have to ask him first, because uh, he has the first right of redeeming you. 
Now, as we pick up the story today, what we're going to find out in chapter 4 is uh, Boaz is going to connect with this Redeemer and ask him to fulfill his rights and responsibilities to redeem Naomi and Ruth. Beginning in chapter 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate, and he sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Well, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to a relative, Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, well, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, well, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you will also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, Well, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, By yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon. Also, Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses today. It's a long passage. The first thing we see in this passage is that God's hand of providence is still in motion. His hand of providence means he lines things up at the right time, at the right place. And Boaz goes to the city gate, and who just happens to be walking by? The Redeemer that he needs to talk to. So he sits him down there. And then there's an interesting phrase in the Hebrew. Um, Boaz says to him, turn aside, friend, and sit down here. In the Hebrew, the word friend is actually missing. It literally says, turn aside, one whose name is concealed. You guys ever see those pictures or those videos where they have a license plate in it? But since it's being broadcast on national television, they pixelate out the license plate so you can't read who it is and find out their identity. This is literally what is happening in the Hebrew. The name of this guy who is the closest redeemer is literally blanked out 
His name is concealed. So we can call him today maybe a more literal name, which is Mr. So-and-so. That's what he is, Mr. So-and-so. Now, Mr. So-and-so hears that Naomi is selling the family farm because she needs money to be able to survive. And at first, he thinks, this is the land grab deal of a lifetime. Now, technically, by the way, she's not selling the farm. What she is doing is she would be renting the farm. Because in the Old Testament times, there was something called the year of Jubilee. And in the year of Jubilee, all land went back to its original owners. So when you sold the farm, you sold it for the number of years until the land of till the year of Jubilee. And that valued the price of it. If it was close to the year of Jubilee, it was less. If it was far away, it was more. And this is what the guy figures. Well, if I buy the land, I have to take care of one elderly widow named Naomi. That's not too bad. I get to buy it for the price of the number of years to the year of Jubilee. But when the year of Jubilee comes and it's supposed to go back to the relative, she'll be dead by then. And there is no male relative. So I get to keep it and add it to part of my inheritance. So it would be you know, financially difficult in the short haul, but in the long haul, man, this is the deal of a lifetime. So while he is, Mr. So-and-so is salivating over this idea of being able to get the land from Naomi, that's when Boaz tells, her the rest, tells him the rest of the story. Oh, by the way, when you buy that land, you also uh, get Ruth, the Moabite. And we learned in the first week that the Israelites and Moabites are like oil and water. <laughs> they should not mixed, mix. So he ends up with having to take care of two poverty-stricken women instead of one. And when he marries Ruth, here's what happens. It is his responsibility to try and help her conceive a son. And when she conceives a son, then he would instantly become the heir who would take possession of that land. And what looked like a wonderful deal instantly turned into a terrible deal. Think of it this way. Say there is 40 years until the year of Jubilee. He buys the land for the valuation of the 40 years. Has to drain his 401k account to do it. He marries Ruth. Ruth gets pregnant with a son. By age 20, the land is all gone and the son is farming it in his place. And he's lost half of his investment. Not only that, but he's going to have to buy diapers. He's going to have to put braces on the children. He's going to have to do car insurance, trombone lessons. And then, of course, there's always a college education. So he says, this is a terrible deal for me. You take it. I don't want to take it. And here's what's interesting. Mr. So-and-so would only help Naomi if it would better his bank and better his reputation. Once he realized that it would drain his bank account and possibly damage his reputation because he was married now to a Moabite, 
he wanted nothing to do with the situation because he was worried that ultimately it was going to take away the legacy he left behind. Now here's where it's interesting. Whose name is fuzzed out so we never know who he is, so there's no legacy he leaves behind? Mr. So-and-so. Now, many people want to talk about the romance that might have existed, they say, they think, between Ruth and Boaz. But the honest truth is, is the more I studied this text, I really don't think they married for romance and for love. I honestly don't. I think they married because there was a family in crisis, a family that desperately needed an heir to pass on the family line and the family land. And it was their marriage that would solve that problem. For instance, look at Ruth chapter 4, verse 10. What does Boaz say about the reason that he would agree to marry Ruth? Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon. I have bought to be my wife. Why? Because she was really good looking? No, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. Ruth, Boaz agrees to marry Ruth because Ruth needs a kinsman redeemer to carry on the family name and land. And he is uniquely qualified to do it. Will it cost him dearly? Will he spend a lot of money in his 401k and then maybe lose it all when she conceives a son? Yes. Will he have to spend money for this kid and then really sort of not get it back? Yes. Mr. So-and-so was about building up his name and building up his reputation. But Boaz, I told you earlier, is a man of character. He knows it may cost him dearly. It may damage his reputation, but it is the right thing to do in the eyes of God to perpetuate the family name. The same thing with Ruth. You notice in Ruth chapter 3, verse 9, which is something that Jordan preached on last week, Ruth says, He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. It's not because I, I really think you're cute or I really think you're attractive, but you are somebody who could help our family in this crisis. Boaz agreed to marriage for very unselfish reasons, even though it would be tough for him financially and socially. Boaz married Ruth not to give himself a great name, but to preserve her husband's name. Boaz absorbed serious financial loss to help the family in a crisis. And what this tells us, God operates on a different kind of math scale, doesn't he? It's not the people who desire to preserve their name and to protect their finances and to protect their reputation that leave a lasting impact in God's kingdom, is it? It is the people who are willing to sacrifice their finances, sacrifice their name and their reputation for others that leave a lasting impact, especially when you sacrifice for your family. 
God is at work in messy families. Here's my first challenge for you today. We are all so tempted to live just like Mr. So-and-so, aren't we? We're tempted to, to protect our name, protect our finances, protect our reputation, especially when there's a messy situation that's right in front of us. And we have that twinge and that pull inside of us that I should get involved, I should help, I should do something. But you know what that's going to cost me? You know what people would say about me? Folks, it's the people who are committed to preserving their future name and reputation who actually lose it. It's those who are willing to sacrifice their finances, their reputation, and their name for the good of others and the glory of God that will be remembered in this life. As I said in the point here, the people God uses in his plan are not those committed to protecting their name, but those who are committed to honoring God's name by coming to the rescue of people in need, especially family members. The story continues. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this woman. townspeople uh, look at this unique relationship, the marriage of a younger woman named Ruth, who was a Moabite, to an older man named Boaz, who was an Israelite. Marriage that was not done primarily out of love, but out of responsibility and care to provide an heir. And they see that there's something unique going on here, that God is at work in this situation and in this life. It's a messy family, but God works at messy, in messy families, doesn't he? In fact, they mentioned two other messy family situations where God was at work, and they see parallels there. One was Jacob. If you were with us for our study of Genesis, you'll remember Jacob actually only wanted to marry one woman, ended up with two. He served Laban for seven years to marry Rachel, his beautiful daughter. But at the end of seven years, on the wedding night, Laban switched women, switched sisters in the, in the bridal suite. And uh, Jacob woke up the next morning to find himself married to Rachel's older sister, a woman named Leah. Leah literally means the cow. He was taken back. Well, the way it ended up working out is Jacob agreed to work for Laban for another seven years in exchange to also get Rachel. Now what happened was Jacob found himself married to two sisters, Leah and Rachel, sisters who feuded with one another to see who is going to be the more favorite wife for Jacob. But here's the interesting part. What a messy, strange family. But wasn't God at work? Because out of Rachel and Leah and their uh, servants, marriage with Jacob ended up coming the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 sons that were born to them. God was at work in that messy marriage, in that messy family, 
advancing his plan and doing good for his people. Isn't that encouraging? When we have messy families and strange marriages that were never like we originally planned. They mentioned another one, which was Judah and Tamar. Judah was one of Jacob's sons, and he was the son that was the problem child. If you remember from our study in Genesis chapter 38, what happened to him, he ran away from home, moved down to the Canaanites, married a Canaanite wife, had three children. The first one, the oldest, but well, they're all sons. The oldest one, a guy named Er. How'd you like that for a name, Er? He married a Canaanite woman named Tamar. He died not leaving a son. So, by Leverite marriage custom, his second son then married Tamar. That second son was a guy named Onan. And to say it nicely, Onan liked all the privileges of being married, but didn't like the idea you should have children in your marriage, at least try to. So God struck him dead. And at that point, Judah began to think, maybe Tamar's a black widow. I have one son left. His name is Sheila, and he's not quite of age yet. I'm not sure if I really want to risk it with him marrying her. Sheila was young, and so he, he lied and promised to Tamar that when, when Sheila gets older, I'll give him to you. But he didn't keep his word. And here we have a crisis, because the scriptures tell us that the line of Jesus Christ ultimately is going to go through Judah, but there's no son. There's no heir to pass on the name. How would things proceed from there? And in what is the most messed up, convoluted situations of all, Judah's wife dies. Tamar knows that she has to bear a son. She dresses up like a prostitute, seduces Judah, and Judah ends up fathering his own grandchildren. That's a really messed up conception situation, isn't it? But did God use it? Did God's plans advance in the middle of it? It was a messy family. But God is at work in the midst of messy families. God is at work in the midst of situations where children were conceived in ways we never expected. God is at work in the midst of marriage situations that are difficult and unplanned. God is at work. He was at work in the past with um, Jacob, Leah, and Rachel. He was at work with Judah and Tamar. And the people say he's going to be at work in this situation too with Ruth and Boaz. The young Moabite woman who's married to the old Israelite man who married not for love, but of obligation to bear a son. And what happens? Ruth and Boaz have a son named Obed, who has a son named Jesse, who has a son named David, who becomes the king of Israel that reunites the people during the time of the judges and ultimately is the very line of Jesus Christ. God is at work in the midst of messy families. In the darkest of times, in the most unlikely of ways, with the most unlikely of people, God is advancing his plan for the good of his people and for the fame of his name in this world. Many of us here this morning are in a messy family. And sometimes, deep inside our heart, we wonder, God, could you still use us after all the convoluted mess that's happened in our home? And I want to tell you, 
God sometimes does his best work in messy families and in messy homes, especially in those like Ruth and Boaz who turn to him and trust in him and look for his mercy upon their situation. Amen? Let me get the last part. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. He went into her, and the Lord gave conception, and she bore a son. The woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap, and she became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Oftentimes when we come to these genealogies, we like to skip them because they're a little bit like biblical psalmonics. You know, an easy way to put yourself to sleep. But I want to just point out one thing that the genealogies teach us, and that is this. God is at work in the lives of ordinary people to contribute to something much bigger than themselves. Isn't that true? God is at work in the lives of ordinary people to contribute to something much bigger than themselves. Ruth and Boaz had no idea that their sacrificial desire to get married sort of because it's the right thing to do to provide an heir, not primarily out of love, is what God would use to produce Obed, Jesse, David, and ultimately Jesus. No idea. They're just ordinary people trying to follow God in their ordinary lives. They had no idea there would be an entire book of the Bible that would be about their story of trying to live ordinary lives of faithful obedience. Ruth had no idea that when she was a Moabite who turned to Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, who trusted in him. She had no idea that God would use her humble obedience in such incredible ways to make her the great-grandmother of King David. God has an incredibly good plan. God is amazing and he is good and he loves to take the lives of ordinary people who have ordinary but sacrificial obedience to him and use it in a great way to make his name famous. And many times, my friends, we will never see how God uses those decisions of obedience in our ordinary lives. I don't know, but I suspect that Ruth and Boaz had passed into the arms of Jesus before they ever saw that David, their great-grandson, would be king. No idea. 
the book of Ruth. It's an amazing story about how God takes those who want to sacrifice their finances and sacrifice their reputation for the honor of Jesus Christ, and he uses it in a great way. It's a story of how God can take messy families, and he uses them to make his name famous. It's a story about how God takes ordinary lives and ordinary obedience of ordinary people and uses it in a great way. It's a story of how God can take lives that are ruined and completely restore them, especially for those who turn to him and trust in him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this book of Ruth. Thank you for how you took Ruth's life that at one time was so incredibly far from you. And as she brought her to yourself and she trusted in you, you used her life in ways that she would never have imagined. Lord, may her obedience and may Boaz's obedience uh, be inspiration to us in our ordinary lives to obey you even when it's not that easy. Lord, thank you that you make your life, your name famous by bringing lives that are ruined and transforming them into restoration. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us. And may God continue to enrich your life.